Welcome to First Baptist Church of Terrytown, sharing God's love and hope around the world. Our prayer is that your life is transformed as you hear the Word of God preached today. King Solomon said, of the writing of books, there is no end. So you think about it, in his day, to write books or scrolls, they would have to have like this scroll, which was incredibly expensive to put together. And, you know, they would write on it and you'd have some sort of ink and it was a long process. And even in Solomon's days, as he is trying to read as much as possible, he identifies and he says, there are more scrolls made, there are more books made than I could ever possibly get to. Of the writing of books, there is no end. And I think if he lived now, I mean, the vast amount of books are incredible. And and the amount of books that he was talking about are, are nothing compared to just like one genre of literature that we have in comparison. There are so many books. There's so many books. There's so much information. And I think if Solomon lived today, he might just very well say, of the writing of leadership books, there is no end. Those of you who live in that kind of world where, where we talk about leadership, you know that there are just stacks and stacks of leadership books. In fact, I brought over from my, my library a couple of stacks of leadership books. These are just leadership books. And I have to tell you, I... Before I moved here about 10 months ago, that, that was, tr- it was triple the size. I started getting rid of all of the leadership books. There were just so many of them. And, and yeah, you, know, you get little nuggets here and there and you get some information here and there. But I, I, I made a concerted effort. If you were a Christian writing about leadership and you weren't talking about how leaders should serve and lead through service, or if you were a jerk, um, I would just get rid of the books. So I got rid of, you know, two-thirds of my library of leadership books, and then I have all these digital ones floating around in the internet somewhere. But there, I mean, that's huge. And if you read through all these, you'll get nuggets of truth. You'll get nuggets of information. And some of these are Christ- written by Christian authors. Some of them are not. Some of them are ris- written by business people. And some of those business uh, leadership principles, they, they translate into our lives. Uh, some of them don't uh, as Christians. Some of them we should... F- flee from, because we shouldn't treat the church as a business, the church as a family. But the reality is some of you are like right now tuning out. You're like, oh, this is about leaders. I'm not really a leader. You are. Every believer is a leader in some capacity. Doesn't matter what your job is. Doesn't matter what your position is, your marital status. Every Christian is a leader in some capacity. You are a leader in your school. If you go to school, right, you might be the student, but you still get to to present your ideas, you still have conversations, you get to lead. Jesus has called you from darkness to light. He has fundamentally transformed your heart. God, the Holy Spirit, is dwelling within you. He wants you to represent himself into the world wherever you go. So even if you're the lowest student in a classroom, you are a leader for the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're at home and you say, I'm not a leader at home, right? No, you are a leader. Children, you can have a positive influence on your family. You're not responsible for their behavior, but you can choose to follow after Christ. You can choose to make your parents' life easier or harder. (sighs) Parents, obviously, you are a leader. If you have children, you are a leader. Well, my kids don't respect me. Well, you're still a leader. You still lead the children you have. Well, my children are all grown up and, you know, they fired me as a parent. Right? You're still a leader. You still lead. 
Uh, You might live in a community and have neighbors. You are called to represent Christ wherever you go. You are a leader. You might have, you might be in a job and you're like, well, I'm definitely not upper management, middle management, lower management. I'm nothing, right? I'm just, I'm just a worker. You are still a leader. What you do influences others. And if you do it in the name and the power of Jesus, it can have an effect. Wherever you are, you are a leader. Young to old, whether you are high up in the echelons of society in, in your job or, or you are, uh, you're not, you are a leader. And if you read through all these leadership books, which I would not recommend, there's a few I would recommend, but uh, I wouldn't recommend you read through all of them. But if you did, you would glean some things. But there's something else I, I haven't really come across too much in leadership books. What do we need to know about leadership? What do we need in order to lead well as Christians? And so as we continue the story through 1 Samuel, we're continuing with this, uh, this epic story that God has preserved through his word, through the Holy Spirit. And as we're in here, I, I wanted to mention too, because I know you guys uh, mentioned with the sermon last week, you had a hard time connecting the sermon because King Saul was the protagonist. And you're like, well, he wasn't king yet. They made him king. But Saul, you're like, but Saul turns bad. So, so sorry, spoiler alert for those of you who don't know, but Saul turns bad. And you know that Saul turns bad and he makes bad choices. So you're kind of like, well, wait a minute. But, the, but he's doing the wrong, he's doing the right thing, but he's a bad guy. But at this point in the story, Saul is a good guy. So we're going to treat him like that for the next few weeks, pretty much up until Easter. So, so Saul at this point is a good guy. We're going to treat him the way the text treats him as a flawed human being. But he's a good guy. He hasn't turned against God. So that's where we pick up the story. Samuel had anointed Saul king over Israel, but it hasn't become public. In fact, Saul is so weirded out by it, he goes home. His father's like, hey, how'd it go with with the prophet? And he's like, oh, we found the donkeys, the the end. And he didn't even tell his dad that he was anointed king over Israel. What do we need to know to lead well? Verse 17, now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. So we saw a couple weeks ago in chapter 8, Israel demanded a king. Samuel said, you don't need a king. God is your king, and he will send you prophets to tell you what he wants. And they say, nope, we want a king like everybody else. He's going to fight our battles for us. Samuel warns them it's not going to turn out the way you want it. They say, we don't care. So now Samuel says, all right, I'm going to give you a king. He gathers them at Mizpah, which is an interesting place. If you remember, if you've been here, that's the place where God delivered Israel from the Philistines. So obviously God is sufficient. But, you know, Samuel's just turning the knife a little bit, maybe a little bit of guilt trip. And he's already warned them, but he says, okay, this isn't the best thing, but we're going to give you a king anyways. You have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourself before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. So it might be easy for us to demonize ancient Israel here and say, ah, how could they possibly reject God as their king? I mean, I kind of see a parent relationship here between Samuel and Israel, right? Samuel... Don't raise hands on this, but I would imagine some of us had parents that would use guilt 
as a means to get us to do what we wanted to do, right? <laughs> I'm not making eye contact right now. I'm seeing people nudging each other, um, right? You, that's kind of what Samuel's doing here. Well, I'm going to give you what you want, even though it's terrible, even though you're rejecting God and me, I'm going to give you what you want. And you could take Samuel's side or you could take Israel's side, but this is kind of a normal dynamic, isn't it? Those of us who are teen, I, actually, I, the, the older kids are over there, but there's a point in our development when we become teenagers where suddenly we go from this relationship with our mom and dad and we're like, mom and dad, I love you. You're great. You're heroes. And then all of a sudden you realize to the cold, hard reality that mom and dad are not the best. In fact, they are demons and idiots and they don't understand a single thing, right? And uh, some of us, I mean, it's a normal, natural progression where we're trying to push away from our parents. And obviously, as we're coming to higher thought, we battle with these thoughts. But some of you rebelled like strongly and verbally and told your parents that. Some of you did it within your heart. But we all kind of went through that phase where you're you're like, oh, mom and dad, they're they're idiots and, 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 and they're evil too. And they're scheming against me. I don't know how you can be an idiot and a schemer simultaneously, but in a teenager's mind, it works. You're like, I can't believe it. It's so terrible. It's so awful. And if you're a verbal teenager, you're like, you guys are the worst and it's terrible. You stop controlling my life. It's my life. You can't tell me what to do. You don't know anything. What's for dinner? (laughs) That's kind of what's happening here in this relationship. Verse 20, then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near. So so he's, he's doing lots. So we've talked about this a little before, but it's basically like rolling dice. Before they had God, the Holy Spirit, who dwelled within them, they would cast lots in order to discern God's will. And so they took all the tribes, they cast lots, and they said, okay, the king's going to come from the tribe of Benjamin. Verse 21, he brought the tribe of Benjamin here by its clans and the clans of the Metrites and was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. (laughs) So Samuel already knew who God was going to choose, but he's going through the motions to prove and demonstrate, like, it's not just God talked to me. Everyone's going to see we're going to cast lots and God is going to choose this man to be king. And so they choose him and everyone looks for him like, where is he? He's hiding. He doesn't want the job. He's overwhelmed by it with this leadership responsibility. Uh, anyone here ever been overwhelmed by the possibility of leading anything? I'd imagine you have been. Oftentimes, God will choose people to lead who absolutely don't want to lead. And as Christians, he's going to put you in situations you would say, I don't want to be in this situation. Right? I can remember being a teenager, sitting in a class and having a teacher talking about how stupid Christians are, how dumb, you know, Christianity is, and all that stuff, right? And you're sitting there, you know, 15-year-old, like, do you say something? Like, this is a leadership moment. Do you raise your hand and say, I'm much more uninformed than you, but you're wrong, (laughs) right, respectfully? Or do you just say, no, I'll just let the teacher keep going on? Oftentimes, God puts us in situations that we don't want to be in, but he calls us to rise up to leadership to say, that is wrong, or we should go a different way, or I have a different idea. 
I can tell you, I, I bet you a lot of you can, can relate to this. I have told God systematically through my life the things that I absolutely would not do. I did. I was like, God, I am not going to do X, Y, and Z. And then, you know, they would come to pass. Um, I, I, I remember telling God at one point, I don't want to date someone shorter than me. I really did. I legitimately did. And now I'm married to someone who's shorter than me. <laughs> and I enjoy Like, I like it. It didn't even occur to me until, like, we were, like, almost getting married. I'm like, oh, I remember telling God that, and I totally forgot. I remember telling God, uh, there is no way I want to be a pastor because I want to actually have an influence on the world, and I don't want to be stuck doing church work. I want to be out there in the world where things happen, right? I remember telling God that, and lo and behold, here I am. I remember telling God, I would do anything for you, but I don't want to do missions where they don't speak English, right? Because I was like, man, that's so hard, speaking to people with another language. Those of you who are bilingual, you know how difficult it is. And I was like, I'll do anything for you except for being in an awkward situation where I can't communicate with other people, <laughs> right? And I was very adamant about that. And there were opportunities in my church growing up, and I was like, nope, nope, nope. I'll go on the English-speaking ones. I'll go on the English-speaking ones. And I, I was firm on that for years. And then, uh, with CrossTalk Global, my, uh, one of my mentors, Kent Edwards, he, he invited me to come and, and go to Vietnam and, and help uh, train pastors so that they can train pastors to effectively communicate the Bible. I'm like, cool, and I was excited about that. And I'm, I, this is how dumb I am. It wasn't until the third year of going to Vietnam that I all of a sudden, we're, we're driving on our way with our translator, that I all of a sudden realized that I told God, I will never do this. And it took me three years to realize God was like, I changed your heart. <laughs> like, it didn't even occur to me when they, when it, God was like, ha, see, I'm going to make you do it. So for those of you who are like, I will never do that, right? I'm going to never lead youth ministry. I'm never going to help with children's ministry. I will never be part of this singing. Um, I'll never preach a sermon, right? Those of you who are like telling God these things, I'll never speak up if someone, you know, in, in, a, in a boardroom situation uh, says something disparagingly against Christians or Christianity, right? Tell God that. Go ahead, tell God that. He'll put you in that situation. He'll change your heart. So if you find yourself fighting against something, that might be God calling you, because Saul, he's over here. Like, he's hiding among the baggage, which has to be pretty extensive, because all of Israel came to uh, hear who the new king was. And Saul's hiding, the king. Verse 23, then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him? who the Lord has chosen. There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. <laughs> so, so God says they're hide, he's hiding among the baggage. You have to imagine, they, they're like grabbing him. They're like, hey, we found him. Here's a leg. And they're like pulling him, like five guys pulling him from the legs. And they're like, wow, he's really long because he's a head taller than the tallest person here. And, and they're pulling him out and, and they're, they're hoisting him. They're like, here he is. And the people say, long live the king, to the guy who is hiding among the baggage. Long live the king. Again, the Bible here, it says he is a head taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. I think what happened is like the guy's hiding the baggage. They find him, they see him, and they go, wow, this is king material. This is king material. You know, we're in another election cycle. Woo, hooray. 
don't know, some of you are probably like, like, I love this so much. And if that's you, come see me afterwards. I'll pray for you. But man, you know, the millions, of, billions of dollars that are spent on this whole process, the, the, the mental anguish, the, the broken, fractured relationships, right? It's like, ah, I have a better idea. What instead of this whole republic democracy thing, what if instead we town to town, we have like a competition, right? And people compete each other and the best of the best, the one who makes it out on top, that person then goes to the county level and then they all work it out and they're fighting over it. And then the best of the best, that person makes it to the state level and then they fight. And then, then all the ones from the state come together and whoever is the greatest, that is the one who becomes the next president, right? That sounds like a good idea. I'm not talking about Hunger Games. I know that's what you're thinking. I'm talking about Miss America pageant. Because <laughs> that's, that's what is, I think, happening here. The people see Saul, and they're like, wow, he is tall, and he's beautiful. We knew from the previous text, they said he, there's no one more beautiful in Israel than him. He's a head tall. This is who should lead us. He's so great. So is that what we need to know about leadership? Make sure you pretty yourself up. And make yourself presentable to others? No. What do we need to know about leadership? This is a pretty good situation for Saul, right? He doesn't want it. And then everyone surrounds him. They're chanting for him. All of Israel, thousands, tens of thousands of voices chanting for him. I don't know about you. I've never had tens of thousands of people chant for me. At best, maybe half a dozen. <laughs> and mostly, most likely it was in jest, right? Tens of thousands of people long live the king. Wow, he's beautiful. He is our king. Verse 25. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them down in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Now what's happening here is pretty wise of Samuel. He is setting expectations. He is clearly setting expectations so everyone knows what to expect. Now, years ago when I was a youth pastor, we had a pretty good uh, group of adult leaders with us. Uh, but as Kristen and I were doing ministry, we we're, were realizing like, you know what? When they don't come to youth group, they don't like call ahead and tell us. Or uh, sometimes we have an event that everyone agreed on, but then it's just us. And it was a huge youth group. So if it was just me and Kristen, it was like, we're, we're defeated, right? There's like 100 kids and us. It's like the end of the world. Uh, we, we obviously can't handle it. Uh, and so uh, we decided like, oh, okay, you know what? We're going to like, let's, let's come up with like a job description for the volunteers. And then we'll give it to the volunteers and say, okay, this is now what we're expecting you to, uh, to do as volunteers. And how was that received? How do you guys think that was received? Were they like, yes, thank you. Or were they like, no, that's horrible. What do you think? Yeah. No. They were like, no, because why? What did we do? We changed expectations. What happened was over the course of like three years, everyone had built their own expectations of what the role and the position required. And, uh, and then when, uh, when we were having trouble, where we we're like, well, we expected you to be there. And they're like, well, we expected to never be there <laughs> or to be there whenever we wanted to or it was convenient for us. And, uh, and, and that caused friction. And I remember one day I was like, I was like leaving the office 
And all of a sudden, like three of them come in and they just like rip me up one side and down the other. Like, this is terrible. Ah, you're awful. You're the worst. And I'm like crying in a puddle as they leave and crumple up the expectations below me. Why? Because I changed expectations after they'd been doing it for a very long time. So instead, what Samuel does is very wise. Is he says, okay. I'm going to set up the expectations right up front. And we're going to write them down in a book. So if anyone's like, wait a minute, this is what a king says. He can go, ha, 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 ha. Yes, it is. We all agree to this. Yeah. So, so for example, when uh, we brought Mindy on board as uh, the new children's ministry director, right? She's been doing that over. So instead of me saying, I'm going to write your job description, because I don't know anything. I've been here a grand total of six months. And I obviously have everything understood. And I, I don't know anything. So I said, okay, Mindy. Let's sit down. How about you write, uh, like, what are all your roles and responsibilities? Okay. So we came up with that. And then it was like, all right, so here, here's also what I'm, I'm thinking, right? And so we kind of negotiated. So we both came up with it. And then it was like, okay, cool. So everyone's on the same page now, right? Instead of me saying, all right, now this is your job. And I could do that with everyone. This is your job and your job. And now you have to do this. And Ronnie, how would everyone respond to that? <laughs> Done. Done. So this is very wise. So is that what we need to know about leadership? We need to set expectations with everyone, either up front or renegotiate them within a team afterwards? No, there's something even deeper and more important. Verse 26, Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. Wow. So Israel is not that small of a place. All of Israel had come and gathered at Mizpah. It's a huge gathering, hundred thousands of people. And he is king. And then there are people, like Saul doesn't go home. He, there's no presidential palace. They don't have that yet. Uh, he just goes back to his dad's farm. That's what the king does. But there are some men there that are so touched, they say, we are going to follow after you. Now, I've seen this uh, in church planting. This has never happened with me, but pastors will start to plant a church. So like a pastor from Texas goes to Minnesota, right? They go up to Minnesota and they're like, we're going to plant a church. And then they have some of their friends and family from their home church. And they say, would you like to come and plant with us? Now, there's no money involved with this. They're not going to pay your moving costs. They're not going to find a job for you. They're not going to give you a stipend. Nothing. It's like, oh, you want to come? And the normal answer, do you want to move from Texas to Minnesota is No. I mean, the general, I mean we're, we're from New York, so we can say this, right? The general answer to any move to Minnesota is no. It's cold, it's dark, it's cold. Right? Terrible pizza, terrible bagels, terrible Chinese food. Come on, the answer is no. Wow, we're in New York. We're like, oh, we're going to pay you well. And it's like, eh, not that well. But I've seen this time and again where these church planters, it's never happened to me, <laughs> where these church planters, they will go. They will go plant a church. And there are people who move hundreds, if not thousands of miles to go plant a church with them. I've seen it happen all across. And it just boggles my mind. How does that happen? Because it doesn't make any financial or emotional or familial sense. What happens is God must be changing their hearts. That's the only answer. It's the only answer. But what do we need to know about Leadership. That's part of the answer. Sometimes God will change hearts and help you to lead. Verse 27. 
But some worthless fellows, some translations will say wicked men, said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no presents, but Saul held his peace. Saul, Saul said nothing. So there are some wicked men, or as the ESV says, worthless fellows. <clears throat> Very British rendering there. How can this man save us? All right, so, so some of them said, we want a king who can fight our battles and can save us. And then they bring Saul, and he doesn't have superpowers, and he can't fly, and he can't shoot lasers out of his, out of his nostrils. And they go, oh, what can this guy possibly do? He lives, in his, he lives with his dad at his dad's farm. What can this guy possibly do? Oh, wait a minute. Superman lived with his dad at his farm. Mm, no, they didn't have Superman back then. Right? Oh, who could, how could this possibly have happened? How could this man possibly save us? And I think Saul, who's still a good guy at this point, he's very wise. They didn't bring him a gift. They didn't recognize him as king. They said malicious things about him, and Saul held his peace. Saul said nothing. I think there's a lot of wisdom there. What do we need to know in order to lead well? In order to lead well, in whatever capacity God has called you to leadership, within a classroom, within a family structure, within a social club, within a social group, within a work situation, you might be the boss, you might be the employee, what do we need to know in order to lead well? We need to know that some people will follow us, some will hate us, just like God. That's exactly the way these people, are. all of Israel, are treating Saul. Some are saying, okay, this is our king, and their hearts are changed, and they're following after him, and they're sacrificing their lives. They're probably leaving their families and their family farms, and they're saying, we're going to be your, we're going to be your guys. We're with you. And there are some that are saying, yes, we're going to follow, and yet there is still opposition. There are people who hate him. And as Christians, we need to understand when God calls us to lead there will be people who will say, yes, I'm with you 100%. And there will be opposition. And we need to be ready for that. Church, I'll throw all the middle children under the bus and it's okay because I am a middle child. As Any other middle ch children here? Any, any other, you know? Yeah, yeah. As a middle child, I want everyone to like me. <laughs> I do. I am the Jan Brady of the family. It's all, you know, I just want everyone to like me no matter what. I know some, like some of you, I don't even get that reference. It's so old. <laughs> but I want everyone to like me. But as Christians, we need to understand if we lead in the name and the power of Jesus Christ, there will be opposition. You are not going to get everyone to like you on board all the time. You can't. It's not possible. And here's the other thing. Here's the really frustrating thing for those of you who are like, you know what? This is crazy. I'm not leading as a Christian. This is a place of business, right? Or right? my community. I'm not, I don't have to show anything. Here's the thing. If you have trusted that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, if you believe that he died on the cross for your sins and rose again, your sins are forgiven. You've been adopted into God's family. And God, the Holy Spirit, dwells within you. And guess what? People can sense the Holy Spirit. Spirit. So even if you try to be a closet Christian and you try to hide your Christianity, 
And you're still like, why am I fighting with these people? Why are these people giving me this hard time? Why is it being so difficult? I'm not doing anything mean or malicious or nasty or cruel to them, and yet they're fighting against me. It's because they can sense God the Holy Spirit within you, and if they are in opposition against God, guess what? They're going to be in opposition against you because you represent God to them. So even if you tried to hide your Christianity, you can't because God the Holy Spirit dwells within you. And they can sense it. They can sense that He, God the Holy Spirit, is within you and moving and stirring within you. And you will always have some amount of opposition. Remember Jesus' words. He said in John 15, if the world hates you, understand. He doesn't say it always will. But if they do, if there's people out there that hate you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of this world, the world will love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. We need to understand in order to lead well in whatever situation at home, at work, that people will treat us the same way they treat God. Some will follow us. Some will hate us or fight against us just the same way they treated God. Now, I have to pause here for half a second because Christians might say, wow, everyone who hates me is like in opposition against God. That might not necessarily be the case because St. Peter in, in his epistles was very clear to say that, look, when you're being persecuted, make sure it's because you're doing good and not because you're doing evil. Or in my modern words, make sure when people hate you as a Christian, it's because you're doing good and you're representing Christ and not because you're being a jerk, right? The Apostle Paul said, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with... Good. Not with, don't, he doesn't say, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with more evil. Fight fire with fire. He doesn't say that. How do we overcome evil as Christians? We overcome evil with good. Church, you're always going to face some amount of opposition because here's the thing the gospel comes into every culture, every family, every county, every state, every country, every culture, every subculture. And it shows what is wrong with that culture. None of us have it right. The American culture is not correct. It is not the kingdom of God, right? You're never going to go to a country. You're never going to go to a family that is perfectly correct, that does not need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God lovingly comes in with the gospel and he illuminates and says, this is wrong. This isn't right. This is unhealthy. And I give you the power to change through my son, Jesus Christ. And when, and he doesn't like beat us up either about it. He spoon feeds us the transformation that needs to happen. But there's no culture that perfectly has it right. There's no church that perfectly has it right. We do not perfectly have it right here. I've never known a church that's perfectly right. I, I, I've never seen that. And so when the gospel comes in, it is going to challenge us and people are going to respond the way that they would respond to God himself. They will say either, yes, I need to change. Yes, I need the transforming power of Jesus Christ. Or they're going to say, no, there's no way I'm going to do that. I'm going to fight you forever. You need to understand 
to lead well, that there are people who will oppose you and people who will follow you. They will treat you the same way they would treat God. When God calls you to lead, be prepared to lead. Be prepared for the opposition, even if it happens in the home. Imagine that. You go with your kids. You're like, you know what? We're going to do a devotional in the morning. We're going to do a devotional at night. And you have kids like, no, we don't want to do this. Ah," You know, be the leader and say, we're going to do it anyways. Right? Put on worship music in your car. Like, I'm not a big worship in the car person, but you put it on, right? If your kids are like, no, you know, don't let them dictate and say, all right, we're going to listen to kids, Bob. <laughs> that is my kryptonite. So if some of, one of you wants to hate me, just like send me links to kids bops or something. I could, I will, I will get the message loud and clear. <laughs> um, no, you say I'm going to move forward, and we're going to love forward in, in the grace. And here's also another another thing to you could say. Well, how do I know if I'm leading and I'm facing op- opposition because? Um, I'm leading poorly, or I'm a jerk, (laughs) and I'm just trying to do what I want to do, Uh, or because I'm trying to follow after Christ. I think one of the key ways is to understand, do you love your opposition? Do you love your opposition? Because Jesus told us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. I think that's the key. When you are being opposed you're like, well, am I being a jerk about this? And if you can't find it within your heart to at least pray that God will help you to love the people who are fighting you, you're probably being a jerk. (laughs) But God calls us, even as people hate us because of the stands that we take, because of the gospel that we preach, because the gospel comes and it changes and it transforms us and it calls us to repent. No one wants to do that. And, And to be transformed by Jesus and to submit ourselves to him and to not be number one. And people oppose us and they're fighting us. And if you can't find it within your heart to even ask God, God, help me to love this person who has become my enemy, there's probably a problem. When you choose to lead, know that you'll be hated. But know that there'll be people who follow. Choose to lead anyways. Let's pray. Father, as we were about to take the Lord's Supper together, I pray for us as a congregation. It is so difficult in this world. And, and Father, I freely, I, I freely confess so much of the criticism against Christians in our culture right now is valid. We don't love our enemies. In fact, what we do is we fight fire with fire. We get angry. We don't show the fruit of the Spirit. Instead, we show the works of the flesh. We get angry. We belittle. We demonize. We hate. We wouldn't use that word, but we do. We are not people who seek justice and reconciliation. We are not people who seek to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. So, Father, I pray for this congregation. I pray that we are a congregation of leaders of servant leaders who choose to lead lead through service and that in every situation that you call us to lead and whenever you drop us into a place that we don't want to be, but you've called us to speak out, to defend the defenseless, 
to lift up the weak, that you give us the boldness to raise our hand, to open our mouth, to speak the truth in love. And you somehow give us the power to love our enemies and those who oppose us and who fight against us. Father, this is all impossible in and of our own self. And so, Father God, we need God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit, won't you come and fill us? Help us to love our enemies. Help us to lead well. Give us wisdom in the paths that we must travel. Prepare our hearts as we take the Lord's Supper together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the church or make an online donation, please visit us at fbctarrytown.org.